Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. How are Christians to live in today's secular society? How do we interact with people who don't hold to the same values on issues like abortion? Frank Beckwith stops by to talk with the gang and brings a unique perspective to questions on Christian liberty. Keep listening after the conversation to find out how you can win an MP3 set from the Alliance. Welcome to the Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman and I'm here with my regular co-hosts, Amy Bird and Todd Pruitt. And today we have a special guest. Uh, The guest is Professor Francis Beckwith who is Professor of Philosophy and Church-State Studies at Baylor University in Texas. And the reason we've invited uh, Frank on to join us is we're living in an era where uh, two things, I think, are happening that are closely connected and will be of relevance to all Christians. Uh, One of them is the rise in uh, identity politics issues. Perhaps the most obvious historically has been uh, that of abortion, but we're now facing questions relating to gay marriage and even beyond that, transgender questions are coming coming up with remarkable uh, regularity. And on the other hand, we're also facing uh, an era where more and more of key decisions in that kind of framework are being made by law courts. Uh, Politics is becoming a very litigious uh, exercise at the moment. So Frank is one of those people who is uniquely qualified to to comment on both issues. And I want to kick off our discussion today by mentioning for our listeners uh, Frank's uh, excellent book, Defending Life, A Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion Choice, which is published by Cambridge University Press and is, I think, one of the best scholarly Uh, defenses of the pro-life position, and also, in passing, one of the best logical uh, demolition jobs on cultural relativism. So it's a a two-for-one kind of book. Uh, I recommend that to listeners. And then, uh, and now, uh, introducing Frank. Uh, Frank, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. I wonder if I could start simply by asking you the obvious question. Uh, How did abortion become a particular interest for you? It's a, it's a great question. I, uh, I was in graduate school uh, in the 1980s and at Fordham where I began most of my work in philosophy in the area of philosophy of religion and metaphysics. And during that time, I had been asked by several friends uh, questions about abortion. I had been, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess intuitively pro-life, but considered myself somewhat of a moderate on the issue. Uh, During one of the discussions I had with my fellow graduate students, one of them really challenged my moderate view. He said, look, if you believe the fetus is a person, then consistently you can't carve out these exceptions. Mm -hmm. And it actually, and he was an atheist. uh, Mm -hmm. and, and, And it was sort of kind of shocked me. And continued, you know, still kind of altering my views a little bit, but my scholarly work was still focused in philosophy of religion, metaphysics, more traditional philosophical issues. In fact, I did my doctorate dissertation on David Hume's argument against miracles, which has nothing to do with what I'm doing now. Uh, But 
when I was hired at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas in 1989, soon after my arrival there, I was asked by the department chair to begin teaching some courses in moral and political philosophy. So, of course, I took courses in those areas in graduate school, but really didn't have a primary interest in it in terms of scholarship. Well, I began teaching, and about a year after I had begun um, offering this course in contemporary moral issues, I was asked by the local American Civil Liberties Union branch to be on a panel on the question of should Roe v. Wade be overturned. And I was really nervous. I read everything I could on the topic. I was all prepared for this real scholarly interaction between high-minded academics. And it turned out to be just another street fight (laughs) with people not really knowing much about the level of argument that was going on among academics and philosophy or even the legal literature. And that's when I I wrote a four-part series for Christian Research Journal called Answering the Arguments for Abortion Rights. And that eventually became a book called Politically Correct Death, which I published in 1993 with Baker. And then since then, my interests have expanded to other questions overlapping law and uh, public life and uh, morality and um, have written in other areas since then. But that's how it sort of began. It, it was kind of accidental. I just kind of fell into it and uh, began seeing connections uh, between some of the issues concerning abortion and those that I had delved into in graduate school in metaphysics. So questions about what is the nature of the human person? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it mean to live the good life? These are obviously not just merely moral questions. They're also questions that are tightly tethered to the sorts of beings that we are. Mm. You know, Frank, obviously there's there's political implications when we talk about abortion. And one of the things that's... Uh, I'm a pastor of a church and, and I'm a pastor of a church and within a denomination that has a clear stance on abortion where we're, we're, we've staked out a pro-life position. But to, to speak about this issue, for instance, as a pastor, sometimes you'll be accused of bringing politics into the situation. But of course, it's impossible um, not to make political connections because there are legislative realities that we're talking about here. And I wonder, what would you say to a person that would say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm against abortion, but I, I don't think we should overturn Roe v. Wade at this point. I don't think we should seek a legislative um, solution. I think rather we should just focus on seeing uh, the hearts of Americans change. How would you reply to that? Well, the first thing I would do is make, I would make a distinction between the legalization of abortion and Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade, uh, what it did, it constitutionalized abortion. That is, there were several states exactly. prior to Roe v. Wade that had actually permitted abortion, but what they essentially the Supreme Court did, it made it a fundamental right. So it's, it's often missed because we tend to associate Roe v. Wade with the question of legal abortion, and rightfully so. But as a technical matter, abortion could still be legal everywhere, and there there didn't have to be a Roe v. Wade. Uh, but having said that, though, the question I would I would raise to the Christian that 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 makes this comment is this: 
Don't we have an obligation to love our neighbors as ourselves? And isn't the unborn child one of our neighbors? That is, if you truly believe that unborn children are members of the human community, they are truly one of us, doesn't it follow from that that we have an obligation to do as much as we can to help those who in fact are in this position of vulnerability. We don't think this way about other matters, do we? I mean, imagine if somebody mm -hmm. said, look, uh, I understand that you know there are members of the Ku Klux Klan that live down the street, and once in a while, sure, they'll burn a cross on the lawn, but you know, let's just talk to them and show the love of Christ. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we would, in a sense, you know, say, you know, there's a sense in which we do give people permission, and I think rightfully so, to to kind of err in, the, in their private and public judgments, right? Mm -hmm. That's what liberty is. But there's a point at which those liberties have to be connected to what it means for a human person to live the good life. And, and I think, if anything, if the government should be involved with anything, it should be the protection of innocent yes. human life. Yeah, I think good. part of what Todd's question is asking and, and how you're answering is something I really picked up in your book, um, Politics for Christians. And um, a point that I really noticed you hammering in there is this pervasive view that um, theology has no claim to knowledge yes. in society. And um, I think that way, the way Todd's asking that question is in the church itself. I think yes. a lot of times we think that way. And so we we think we may have some claim to some virtues but um, not knowledge itself. And so then we base our argument more on uh, plain morality than the theology behind it. Um, like the question, where do our rights come from? Do they come from the government or do they come from God? That, that's right. I, I, that's one of my, well, pet peeves, if I want to, <laughs> if you want to yeah. put it that. Um, and in fact, I, there are two people that really had a big impact on me in thinking this way. One of them was the late Dallas Willard. Hmm. And uh, his work in, in philosophy, uh, especially his one of his last books, I think it's uh, Following Christ Today, I think the name of it is, I, I forget, but he's got a, a chapter about uh, how the separation of church and state in, in, in the United States has shifted from an understanding that treated religion as a legitimate avenue of knowledge to a now kind of a separation of faith and reason. Mm -hmm. And it's and I thought it was a really good insight. And the other is uh, Pope Benedict, while he was uh, a Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, uh, published a book called Truth and Tolerance, and he made a very similar observation. Uh, years ago, when I was, this was I think 12 years ago, I was at Texas Tech University uh, giving a talk on science, theology, and the law at the law school there. And there, at the end of my talk, because I was there to talk about some of the, the Darwin intelligent design, public school debates, and one of the um, professors in the audience from one of the science departments raised his hand, and he, he said, all you've given us are religious arguments. Hmm. And I responded, wow, I'm, I'm relieved. I thought you were going to say they were bad arguments. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the place just, there was like a, a moment of pause and then laughter, and he was not happy <laughs> that response. But the point of the response was to was to try to bring this out. And I told this to the audience. I said, look what he's trying to do here. He's trying to say, uh, just because your position happens to lend credibility to a theological point of view, that in itself means it's irrational. Wow. That's really and that, that, that kind of thinking is so prevalent. It really and is. That's, 
that that's why I wrote the the book that's coming out later this year, Taking Right Seriously. It deals in every chapter with this habit of mind you find uh, in, in among Supreme Court justices, a lot of legal academics, and it's it's sort of stunning. Um, and I think Christians have a lot to work a work to do to sort of change people's minds on that. Yeah, I I, I had a thought we, b- before you came on. Frank, we, we were the three of us were just kind of having a discussion about certain issues connected to abortion. Carl mentioned how how effective some of the technological advances have been, like these high resolution uh, ultrasounds, which are helping people see because we're such a visual society uh, that that this is a baby inside uh, who's growing. But I, I think it was about 10 years ago um, that, that I, I read an article by by Naomi Wolf where she just comes right out and acknowledges what what we can't not know, which is this is a human life. And she comes right out. She finally gives that, okay, yes, let's just admit it. In fact, she, she admonishes some of her fellow uh, feminists by saying, basically, it, it doesn't make sense for us to continue to deny that this is a human life. But then she makes that really uh, stunningly frightening leap to saying, it's just a lesser life. That's right. And that's what we're seeing develop. You know, in the 1970s, the feminists had to say, and the pro-abortion activists had to say, it's not a life. Now, as that's becoming more and more ridiculous, self-evidently ridiculous, they've made now a very frightening leap. Well, and you have people like Peter Singer taking that yeah. to its, its logical conclusion right. where, relative to uh, post-birth. Right. Abortion. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, infanticide. Doesn't by, ma- by matter what you are as a human being. Yeah. It's, right. it's what, how you can contribute. Yeah. What yeah. you yeah. do. That's something you bring out very clearly in the book, I think, actually, Frank, that, that, that the issue of whether uh, the fetus is a, is, is a person or not is not really the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that's, that's a powerful part of the book. What would you say to you know, Todd and I, both pastor churches? Uh, I'm guessing most of our congregants will not have the time to, to work through. Uh, defending life, uh, they need something uh, you know, more accessible, more more easily digestible. Something they can read while they're going to work on their morning commute. Perhaps that's the only time they get to to have some time on their own to read. What would you recommend for Christians to read in order to be informed uh, about these issues and to be able to to give a defence of the pro life position when challenged? There's a, a wonderful little book by Scott Klusendorf, who is the uh, director of a group called Life Life Training International, I think. But I've known Scott for over 20 years. Um, he has taken a lot of the material that people like myself, Robbie George and uh, Patrick Lee have written and, have, and has distilled it for uh, church groups. Um, and you'll be happy to know that he's also a Presbyterian. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> that, that is an excellent – that's an excellent resource, by yeah. the way. It's an excellent so, resource. Uh, but Scott's very good. Uh, I also highly recommend the work of, of Greg Kokel. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his group, Stand to Reason, they've produced some wonderful small booklets and tracks and, and essays that are, um, I think – in terms of interacting with the high-level literature, very respectful, but they explain it in a way that I think you know the ordinary person can understand. So, um, yeah, I think both Scott's work and uh, and Greg's are, are very good. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, that's good. One of the 
questions that comes to my mind as we're, we're thinking about this, uh, Frank, is you know, debates about abortion often come down to debates about personhood. And that is something that also impacts debates about sexuality. I presume you do, but I mean, do you see a connection between the abortion debate and, and current discussions of um, homosexuality, but even transgender issues? Do you see that those two things are connected in some uh, metaphysical or philosophical way? Yeah, I, I, I think they are connected. And, and the, the sort of conventional wisdom today is to say they're not connected. Uh, Jonah Goldberg at National Review a couple of months ago said uh, there's one could easily be uh, pro-life and abortion and, uh, and pro-gay marriage. And of course, people can be. And, and he locates the similarity of why people hold what many of us as Christians maybe believe are inconsistent positions based on the fact that the child is an autonomous person and so is the individual who identifies as, you know, gay or, or whatever. Uh, I think that I think there's a certain truth to what he's saying in terms of a kind of modern thinking about human identity. But I do think the issues are connected in this regard, that what makes you you isn't the being that you are, but the type of conscious awareness of what you want to be so or what you think you are. So, for example, Singer says you can kill the newborn because it hasn't reached a level of consciousness or self-consciousness. Um, why is that important? Because that is what you are. You're just simply a collection of emotions and feelings and so forth. The traditionalist, someone who holds a view that abortion is wrong, says no. What you have to understand is the human being has a particular nature and is ordered towards certain goods and to disrupt those goods prematurely is to harm that person even if they choose even if they don't choose those goods. <laughs> so in the in, in the in the gender the debate over gender and, and homosexuality, uh, one side says the human being's sexual powers are ordered to these goods. Uh, you may have desires not to exercise them in that way, but those desires uh, are not right. <laughs> yeah. hmm. But that violates the sort of modern understanding that there's no teleology to the person. Whatever order of the person that exists is determined by the person. So, so I, I think that's the similarity. So um, you often hear when people debate about moral issues, they'll often appeal to their subjective preferences, right? That's not mm -hmm. what I want. Right. Well, well, maybe what you want is wrong. And that's, mm -hmm. that simply is out, outside of, that's, there's no way they can accommodate that. Yeah. That's also where I think the church has really hurt itself because um, not being able to um, make the theological argument as knowledge, I think that so often we have settled for being the virtuous argument. But now it seems like um, we've lost that as well because whether it's stem cell research or the woman's right to choose or gay marriage or embracing transgender identification, like those are the new um, societal virtues. Mm -hmm. And so now we're, we just look like a bunch of meanies who won't serve cake. Right. <laughs> at, you know, you know I think we've I've really lost all of our standing and our voice in society. Yeah. And I think beneath it all is this, is this elimination that there's such a thing as an objective human good. Mm. And look about, look at things that, which has happened this past week in, in, in France and discussions about censorship and free speech and, and people 
are, are trying to sort of they're struggling to figure out well, why is free speech good at all? Hmm. I mean, they're, they're they're kind of and this is a consequence of reducing the whole idea of the good to preferences because you sit, ordinarily the argument would have been long time ago. Well, free speech is a good because. Human beings have the power to communicate with each other and communication is itself a good and that builds friendship and friendship leads to community. So there's a, there's this connection between speech and friendship and the person. But once you've evacuated that, once you say, well, we don't know what persons are. Hmm. Well, persons speak. So <laughs> you don't even. So, you, a good point. so there's a weird. So there's a disconnect. And this is why tyranny will always fill the void hmm. because someone will say, I know what it's for. And they'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, there seems to be as well an, an underlying. It sounds very trendy to put it this way, but an underlying war against the body as well. I was very struck last week reading something by Denny Burke on his blog, where he's talking about the transgender issue and saying, you know, why is it that if somebody says, "I'm a woman trapped in a man's body," we automatically assume that the, the mind and the will, if you like, have priority over the physical characteristics of the body. And I thought Denny's question really pointed to the fact that we do not like the authority that our bodies impose upon mm. us. Uh, it, it's almost like the last stage in, in, in the human assertion of autonomy, that not even our bodies wow, yeah. any longer have any kind of sovereignty on us. Skinny woman yeah. trapped in a fat woman's body or something like I've that. not read that book, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Same of, level of yeah. What do you think I, of that, I, Frank? Not the skinny woman trapped in, no. in the fat woman's body, I, I, but uh, I, won't, I won't even go there. <laughs> yeah, there's. I, I think that's right. I, I you know, the uh, and in fact, in, in a weird way, it's. I guess it's a kind of secular version of the Gnostic heresy, mm. right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. almost yeah, as if yeah. we're we're we're, we're you know that somehow. I mean, it's kind of like Manichaeism on steroids. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's uh, which is kind of weird because steroids only affects the body, right? So, um, so yeah, so yeah, it's it's this. It's somehow my body is simply an instrument of my mind, hmm. and and I mean, if you had to pick a kind of culprit behind this, I mean, I think what you have today, and this is my as a philosopher making this observation, you have nominalism plus Descartes equals today. Right. I mean, so you have this, you know, the, the person is not really an embodied soul. It is simply consciousness and the body sort of makes it more difficult uh, for that consciousness to exercise all its powers. And my body is also just a canvas. So I can sort of put anything I want on it. I can put tattoos on. I can I can go to the doctor. And, and if I ask him to remove my left arm because I you know, just want to see how it is to have one arm. That's mm -hmm. fine. Uh, I actually raised, I teach a medical ethics class at Baylor and I have my students um, read this story uh, of, of a guy that walks into a uh, plastic surgeon's office and asks for his right leg to be removed. And because he says it's, it's, it's just, he just doesn't think it's re it's really him. And, and, and they're horrified at this. And then I say, well, what if he comes in and asks for his genitalia to be and then they are caught. I mean, then they realize that they have stepped into, you know, going stepped into something that's resistant to the dominant cultural way of looking at these things. And but yeah, I mean, there's a there's a real. I think Burke's right on this. Yeah, mm -hmm. 
I was struck when you were describing Peter Singer's view of newborn children before they become persons in his view. You know, it sounds, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but it sounds to me as if he describes them as a, a bundle of Aristotelian accidents. They have, right. they have no personal substance. They're just a bunch of accidents at that point. Uh, which, right. which begs all kinds of questions about when somebody does move from being an accident to being a person, a, a substance, of course. That's right. And if they're not persons, then why can't we give them to cannibals? Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, what would yeah. be wrong with that? I yeah. mean, this is um, – yeah, so this – yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, one last question, Frank, before we, we wrap this up. And again, it goes back to something Todd mentioned a few moments ago. We were, we, the three of us were talking before the show about how things like ultrasounds have helped to, to swing public opinion uh, more against abortion than perhaps it was 30, 40 years ago. One of the ironies is I'm the Paul Woolley chair of church history at Westminster. And Paul Woolley, uh, minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, wrote a pro-abortion report on the abortion issue in 1970 for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So conservative religious opinions clearly shifted somewhat uh, uh, over the last 40 years. And, and some of it has got to be to do with we can now actually see babies in the womb. Do you think there's something that might shift public opinion on, on the gay issue or on the transgender issue? Because it seems at the moment that the odds against profoundly turning back the tide of public opinion are massively against us. Do you see anything at all that might fulfill that function? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a that's a very good question. I I don't think that. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that people who have different stories get those stories out. Mm. That is, you know, there are people that have uh, had in their own personal lives struggles with same sex attraction, or have been, you know, it, I, I think sexuality is much more fluid. Yeah. Than, 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 than the sort of conventional wisdom mm-hmm. lets on. But I do think those stories have to get out. The, the, the part that's difficult about this is that I, I've known some people who've tried to get their stories out and they have been uh, harassed, right. uh, threatened. I mean, there's a real vested interest in uh, maintaining this narrative that uh, sexuality is something that can never be changed or altered. Uh, although I actually think it's just the narrative for now. I think at the end of the day, the real goal is to eliminate uh, differences of any kind. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to hear it's it's really fluid in about ten years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think uh, because that's the reality. Or people that have had you know, have suffered in their lives as a consequence of living in certain ways. And that's, um, those stories have to get out there. Unfortunately, uh, it's difficult because the people that have to present them are going, are going to suffer persecution. Mm. Well, on that very somber note, Frank, I'd like to, uh, thank you for, for coming on the program. Uh, we very much appreciate the work you're doing in in ethics and specifically uh, as it relates to the abortion question and to and, and it sounds like you know questions connecting to identity politics uh, and law uh, we we hope that you'll continue to write on these topics in a way that is helpful for for the church and uh, just remains for me now to, to thank our listeners for uh, tuning in please visit the website notificationspin.org where we will put up more resources on these questions for for those of you interested to to chase up and we look forward to being with you next time
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Head over to mortificationofspin.org to enter for a chance to win God's Servant in Christian Liberty, a set of MP3 messages by James Boyce. On the next episode, the hosts ask, How should one listen to preaching? How should one even listen to bad preaching like Todd's? Is, is there a way to, to approach it? All that and more next time. And don't forget to read more from Carl, Amy, and Todd on mortificationofspin.org. That was great. Thanks, that was Frank. Thanks very much for that. that well, was, thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, that it's, was very helpful. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. You are our first ever Roman Catholic <laughs> guest. Yeah. And, uh, oh, broke the ceiling. <laughs> so, yeah, the, gla- the confessional glass ceiling has now been shattered. So, uh, but thanks ever so much. And I know you're very busy getting set up to go to Italy, so thank you very much for, for oh. stepping in at the last minute. You should interview me from the Vatican. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> we should have done that. That would be a scream. Yeah, that would be a scream.